you know, it was a hell of a fucking year just to be alive. And let alone if you're a financial professional or uh, if you are in the markets or you're a member of FinTwit, one of the people that follow me on Twitter, or you're some type of day trader or just trying to get your start in the market or whatever. If you're involved with the market at all, it was a hell of a fucking year. And I thought it would be a good time since I was so engaged this year. And also because I got a lot of things right this year. So I figured what what better time to do a year in review than when I can spend an hour bragging about what a fucking super genius I am and how huge my brain is. <laughs> Psych, I'm drinking $9 brandy right now. Happy New Year's Eve, fuckheads. Hello, this is the QTR Podcast. Jockwins, a product of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I highly recommend their brandy. Purchasing it in the one-gallon size, which would be the giant plastic jug. If that's not how you're drinking your brandy, well, then you know nothing about class. Let me just say that. First and foremost, let me shout out the people that made the podcast possible this fine year. Actually, it wasn't a fine year. It was a hemorrhoid on top of another hemorrhoid this year. All things considered, it wasn't that bad. But I do want to shout out the people that made the podcast possible this year. First and foremost, my buddy Pete Hedgetus over at the Trader's Path. Thanks so much, Pete. Love you over there, man. Trader's Path, great online day trading community. If you're looking for a daily watch list, live streams, trade ideas, a great community. Pete is the man. He is a he's a raging bull defector. He left, I think he was... Uh, Involved with Jeff Jeff Bishop some years ago and said, I don't, you know, I'm not interested in doing business this way. I want to do my business my own way. And that's why he started the Trader's Path. And that's why I'm recommending him. That's why he gets a shout out on every podcast. And Jeff Bishop's PR person, I think her name's Clarice Gomez, who has been emailing me nonstop for the last 18 months to get him on the show. That's why she has failed and Pete has won. So to the victor go the spoils. And that is me swigging on a $9 bottle of brandy, screaming your name into a microphone. Pete, we made it this year, brother. 2020 is down the shitter. How about my homeboy, Sang Lucci, down in Puerto Rico? Lucci supported the podcast all year, too. Sang Lucci of the Sang Lucci Steam Room, which is really one of the best platforms for tracking unusual activities in the options market and tape reading and flow and market psychology and all the things that you guys probably blow at sang lucci is very good at and he's also my friend and a very nice guy so i love shouting him out he's a great guy to do business with just like pete these guys you can reach out to them through the podcast description and uh, they'll let you try their services for free Tell them I sent you. Tell them you don't want to sign up with a credit card. Tell them you want to be completely anonymous and sign in through the Tor browser using a pseudonym and that I said that's okay and they'll uh, they'll let you slide. How about also, what a great year for gold and silver this year. I want to shout out my official gold and silver exclusive providers. The only place I buy my physical bullion from and it has been that way since they uh, signed up to support the podcast. I have not bought bullion from anywhere else but JM Bullion. Why is that? I love their service. They turn my orders around quickly. They have inventory always in stock. They ship my orders usually on the same day that I order them. Their turnaround is incredible. And they are very nice people to do business with. I've really enjoyed getting to know them over the last year or year and a half. And uh, I want to make sure that I shout out JM Bullion. If you're looking for bullion, gold and silver... And even if you don't know what you're doing, you can email Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. She is an exclusive 
salesperson that is just there for people that listen to the QTR podcast. So she, you will have her undivided attention. Now, please do not email her with other inquiries. Maybe you just need a therapist and you're looking to talk to somebody about your feelings. In that case, leave her alone. But if you have a semblance of an interest in gold and silver, please do reach out to the wonderful Kathy who has kicked ass all year. 2020, JM Bullion, thank you guys so much for your continued support of the podcast. I really appreciate it. Additionally, my longtime supporters and people that have continued to make the podcast possible, like my friends at Corvus Gold, my buddy Nathan over at Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause. Thank you, buddy. Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my buddy Jay Mintzmeyer. He's going to be on the podcast in 2021 because we got to talk about dry shipping because I don't know Dick about it and he knows everything about it. So I figure if we meet somewhere in the middle, we'll still be super geniuses about it. Crichton Titus, what's up? How about Max Mulvihill? I was just chatting with Max today. What's up, man? My longest running supporter. In February, it'll be two years for Max Mulvihill. Thank you so much, my brother. He was patron number one. I want to shout out some of my newest patrons, too. Jesse Dwayne just signed up a couple days ago. Thank you, brother Jesse. I appreciate that shit. Kyle Funk and Michael Towns. Jenna Tolls is in the house. Robert M. Bloom. I can't see your last name. It just says Bloom dot dot dot. I'm going to just make it up. Robert M. Bloom Gardner. <laughs> Sounds like it. Michael Kahn. James Polos. Brian Ferenbach, thank you, my brother. Eugene Jolly and Tony Prez, Ray, Daniel Reither, Derek Seifert, the IntelliTrade apps in the house. Thank you to everybody that stuck with me, too, even if you reduced your patron this year. I know it was a shit year, and a lot of you guys did that, and that's cool, man. I appreciate you guys just so much for, for hanging in there with me. That's uh, It's pretty rad, and it and it makes it, it gives me nice motivation to, uh, to stay up to date and lets me know that people are interested to do podcasts like today's. I don't have a guest today, but I got a lot of shit that I want to talk about and get off my head. So uh, I do these podcasts for you guys that are patrons because I know that you look forward to them. How about some of my other patrons like Brian Susie and Margo Cosia? Thank you. People that have been with me for a while like Bobby Brooks and Will J. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate you. Chris Karahoff. Chris Karahoff, Chris I think your name is. Whatever your name is, I appreciate you. Kevin Sullivan. Ben Roy is in the house. You got to have faith. 113. What's up, homeboy or woman or whatever you are? I appreciate you. Whatever you're into, I'm down with. Bo Baldwin. What's up, homeboy? Remember when we worked at Apple together? Bo just came out of the woodwork as a patron one day. I hadn't talked to him in like 10 years. I I still haven't talked to him, I don't think. But I'm saying what's up. We used to work at the old uh, Apple store in King of Prussia a long time ago. Back when we were overseeing the iPhone 1 launch. I was working for Apple when the original iPhone came out. Those are some good days. We used to go next door. There was Bahama Breeze, I think, and I think the other place was Fox and Hound. They had a lot of beers on tap. They have some very good memories from those days. Ah, I'm getting sentimental at the end of the year. Maybe I should drink some more brandy. Hello! Is everybody having a nice day? Let's talk about 2020 and all of the fucking crazy shit that happened this year, and I'll tell you a little bit about my year and talk about some things that I haven't talked about. Did I finish the shout-outs and all that shit? I'm not a financial advisor. This is not financial advice. It's never financial advice. I hold no licenses, no registrations, etc. Please, uh, uh, the hell with it. I mean, if this year wasn't a lesson in the mainstream financial media for the most part being completely fucking useless, I'm not sure what was. I mean, we started the year in January 
And I remember sitting around watching these tiny little headlines come out of Wuhan, China about the coronavirus. And I remember when I first started seeing them in late December, early January last year, I started to joke about them. As a matter of fact, I, had, I don't think I had ever heard of Wuhan before. And naturally, the, my first inclination was to make a Wuhan got you all in check joke, which of course is a Busta Rhymes reference. And uh, a couple of weeks after I made that first joke, I went back, I think, and deleted it off Twitter because I realized, well, we may be heading for a serious situation that Busta Rhymes might not have the answer for, though I can't prove that. I'm not sure how he's doing this year. But uh, regardless, I thought maybe we would have to take shit a little bit more seriously and that I should alter my public approach to the coronavirus. Basically, in January, what happened was every day we would get a headline about an increasing number of coronavirus uh, infections coming out of China. Anybody that has experience in working with U.S.-listed China-based companies or the Chinese government Uh, at least in my opinion, knows not to trust anything that comes out of the Communist Party of China. And so I took those numbers with a grain of salt in late December and early January and started to hype myself up a little bit in January about the prospect of this shit coming to the U.S. In fact, it became very clear to me as I was watching the coronavirus really not even being covered on the mainstream media, but kind of coming through on the terminal once in a while, or maybe on the crawl on Fox News, it started to kind of trickle into the mainstream barely in late January. The story then was impeachment. Remember, because the place I would go to for lunch would have Fox News on every day. And every day the story was the impeachment. Remember, they were going to impeach Donald Trump for, in his words... Making a perfectly perfect, fine, totally perfect, and completely okay, and 100% perfect phone call. It was a perfect phone call. And you know what we did? We released the transcripts. Nobody expected us to release the transcripts. And we released them. We released them. And what you could see was it was a perfect phone call. Somebody said it was a perfect phone call. People keep telling me, Mr. Trump, it was a perfect phone call. What are they impeaching you for? I said, I don't know. I don't know. That was the scene basically in January. And Nancy Pelosi was handing out commemorative pens to mark the impeachment. So if you have those pens, you now have, I guess, what, memorialized the fact that the impeachment did nothing and served no purpose. But for to distract everybody, I think, from the coronavirus. I mean, if you're a Democrat, basically you spent the year or the last four years just looking at things to complain about. What is Donald Trump fucking up that we can latch on to and tweet about or get a soundbite about or whatever um, to try to make it look like it's as horrible as possible? And while they were preoccupied with the impeachment mess, uh, COVID was happening in the background. And so... I started to notice that, and really, I mean, I'm not some, uh, you know, exceptional profiler. I'm not some amazing analyst. I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I just started thinking, wow, Wuhan, that's close to several airports, and airplanes fly in and out of New York and L.A. all the time. So if this shit is in China, it's got to be in the U.S., or if it isn't, it's going to be here very soon. And lo and behold, I took to Twitter. I was reading some of these tweets yesterday that I put out in January. 
basically, I was going around telling people before the first wave of everything sold out. I mean, you remember everything sold out. Masks went first. But uh, after that, um, you know, toilet paper and paper towels and all this shit sold out. And in January, I remember going around before the first wave of masks selling out and I was buying up masks. I went to Lowe's, I went to Home Depot, I went to, I have a local Sherwin-Williams, I went there. And in addition to that, I was stocking up on all of the necessities that I would need if this thing got to the U.S. uh, and if it was going to be a big problem. Because I was worried, not only that they were lying about the infection numbers in China, but that they were worried about the, uh, how fatal the virus was. That was my biggest worry. So I would go and do daily channel checks and kind of tweet about them on the daily. Hey, Lowe's only has one mask left. Or hey, Sherwin-Williams has no masks left. Or this place is out of Tyvek suits or whatever. And I spent most of January being called a conspiracy theorist. A fear monger was a big one too. It was creating a big fear over nothing. It wasn't here. It was just like the flu. It was this. It was that. Whatever. So I caught a lot of shit. And then lo and behold, we moved into February, and all of a sudden, the problem became a little bit more evident here in the United States, and people started to take it a little bit more seriously. I was critical of Donald Trump in his first press conference about the virus, because by the end of January, I knew the shit was here, and I was pissed off that the government wasn't acknowledging it or wasn't doing anything, and they did a first press conference before they established the Pandemic Task Force, the Pandemic Justice League, before that, and they really didn't do a very good job. I was not impressed. That was the conference where Donald Trump said, we have 15 cases and they're going to zero. I did a periscope that night, and in that periscope, I said, this quote exactly is going to lose Donald Trump the election. Now, you got to remember, I mean, now we're looking around like, all right, well, everybody wears masks. The pandemic's a way of life. We're kind of used to it now. 12 months ago, this was completely unheard of. And what I said was over the next six months, 12 months, however, this is going to develop in such a manner that the Democrats are going to be able to point back to that phrase that he said and run that over and over and over again. And that's going to cost Donald Trump the election. And I got a lot of shit for that back in February. But it turns out that's pretty much exactly what fucking happened. Now, granted, I give the Trump administration a lot of credit because it was the next press conference. They had the task force set up and they put Pence in charge of it, who I know a lot of people have a lot more faith in than than Trump. Uh, but they really seemed to get their shit together relatively quick. For As quick as the, you could expect the gears of government to kind of grind along, uh, they started. In February. And I remember, you know, I was speaking to my mother on a daily basis because I had called my parents in January and scared the shit out of them and basically just said, listen, this is going to be a problem. Get out, buy this, buy that, whatever. And uh, and I think at the time, even they were like, what the fuck? Like, what are you talking about? But, you know, lo and behold, it wasn't a month later that they were saying, hey, we're glad we got toilet paper because every other asshole in the world is out, you know, getting their toilet paper now and you can't get it anywhere. People were getting into fights and it was just it was it was insane. It was like the first first telegraphing of the civil unrest that was to come for the rest of the year. I just remember talking to my parents in February and saying, all right, well, the wheels of government are turning and 
I remember saying in February, March, look, everybody in the world, and I said this on my podcast, so you guys probably know this shit, but everybody in the world has a vested interest in creating a vaccine, trying to solve this problem with COVID. And at this point, everybody's on it. The, the case is officially open and the whole world is officially on notice. And so part of that gave me some uh, relief. In late January, uh, early February, I wrote a article called The One Number That Could Reveal a Chinese Coronavirus Cover-Up. That was February 2nd, 2020. And the gist of that article was, and again, this was really before the coronavirus was any kind of problem. Remember Bill fucking de Blasio was riding the subway in March and saying, ah, ride the subways, everything's fine. I was looking at the article today. Ride the subways. By the way, we'll tell you if you need to stay home. You know, of course, that was the period where he was basically encouraging people probably to infect each other at a very rapid rate um, because the virus was already here, obviously, in March. And that was around the same time that Nancy Pelosi was in Chinatown. You know, talk about virtue signaling. Like, this is what happens when you are, like, overtly concerned with racism. When, like, you make a huge, huge deal out of racism in your daily life. This is what happens. You get a problem where a virus comes out of China and Nancy Pelosi, her first thought is not, hey, maybe we should give people that have been to and from China some distance, uh, you know, which of course she doesn't want to be perceived as racist because, hey, you can't blame the Chinese people. It's like, well, yeah, you're not blaming them, but actually you're just being practical. Like if a virus came from China, it would be practical to perhaps distance yourself from people that recently traveled to China. Just fucking spitballing here. Stop me if you've heard this one. But instead, her fantastical brain, she goes, I forget what she did, but she wound up going to Chinatown in San Francisco or something and, you know, ordering noodles or something that was, uh, you know, completely not racial stereotypical. Here I am eating noodles. See, there's no problem. I'm not sick. Do whatever you want. Go to Chinatown, you know. We need to, you know, stop being xenophobic. I think one of them called Trump xenophobic for the travel ban in in late January. And lo and behold, despite the fact that I criticized Trump and I gave him a lot of shit for not being on the ball originally and said it would cost him the election, which it did, I do have to say that the travel ban in late January was relatively uh, prescient. That was a uh, that was a relatively good call. So Prior to that, or right around that same time in late January, I wrote an article called The One Number That Could Reveal a Chinese Coronavirus Cover-Up, basically saying, hey, we got to take a look at data when it comes out of South Korea and data when it comes out of Italy and all these other countries that we can trust because we can't trust China. And I was worried about either the number of infections being undercounted or the fatality rate being uh, underreported, which could have been way worse um, turns out that was not the case. I mean, to this day, I still believe it was simply the number of cases that was underreported and not the uh, fatality rate uh, coming out of China. And so that was that. Uh, in late February, February 22nd, I wrote a second blog. And again, this was prior to March. So the politicians are all saying, hey, go out. Don't worry about it. You know, I remember everybody was saying it's not a big deal in March. And I'm sitting around like, well, fuck, it ain't. I wrote an article called The Time is Right Now, Why the U.S. Must Act Decisively and Overwhelmingly to Confront the Coronavirus. This was February 22nd, 
2020, I looked at some of the uh, daily new cases coming out of South Korea and uh, took a look at a bunch of bullshit that the uh, Global Times editor wrote. Now I'm looking at it now, but basically I concluded this piece by saying, I urge our leaders to act in a bipartisan way and I would urge my readers to forward them this article and suggest they do the same for benefit of our families and our country, both of which we love. Weeks ago, this is what I wrote in February. I am not even addressing the potential. Hi, I'm fucking new here. Let me have some more brandy. Hold on. All right. This is what I wrote in late February. I am not even addressing the potential financial impact of this virus. The first cases in major U.S. cities will grind the U.S. economy to a halt and there's going to be nothing the Federal Reserve can do to save it. This was before QE Infinity, before we shut the whole fucking country down, I wrote that. That is another article for another day. Most of my readers already know how I feel about it. Today's point is far more important than the economy. It's a matter that I believe could be life and death. Weeks ago, I was labeled a fearmonger and a conspiracy theorist for merely suggesting that people may want to take some type of precaution and be skeptical of China's numbers. Now, those suggestions are looking closer to what the government may be ready to acknowledge as reality. It is with the same prescience that I am today suggesting that the government acts swiftly and extraordinarily decisively to respond to this virus right now by preparing the healthcare systems and citizens of this country before it gets out of control. So that was in February. And finally, the government did 15 days to slow the spread, but that was in not March, not April. That was in May they did, I think. Was it in May? I'm an idiot. Hold on. March 16th, they did 15 days to slow the spread. So about a month later, the White House finally acted with, you know, excessively and decisively, which was basically what I was suggesting for the reason of lowering the burden on the healthcare system. So from there, my efforts kind of turned to the financial angle on things. And in February, I remember positioning myself short uh, and getting run over as the market continued to go up as numbers in the U.S. and globally continued to rise and didn't make sense. I, I didn't understand it. I was going to a local bar called the Trap Tavern every once in a while, and I would sit there and eat a grilled cheese sandwich and look at the futures on my phone at around six o'clock because that was the time that the futures opened and right around the time that data started coming out of China about the case numbers and the case numbers would always go up and so would the futures and I would sit there and eat my fucking grilled cheese and just be like well you know looks like another day where the market's not going to go down and then all of a sudden the market went down people started to notice the coronavirus became not something on the little crawl at the bottom of the screen, but the lead story in the news. I think the impeachment crapped out and people were looking for something to talk about. And so COVID became the narrative in late February or early March, I think, right before we did 15 days to slow the spread. And all of a sudden, people that didn't notice anything noticed anything all of a sudden. Everybody went apeshit. People were fucking buying toilet paper and paper towels and booze. I remember, I mean, I was heavily stocked with booze already, but I remember making a supplemental trip to the liquor store in like March 
when we first did the lockdown, or maybe it was even before they had decided to close and do the lockdown, and just walking through the liquor store, and I was like, holy shit, I don't remember seeing it like this even on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. I mean, the liquor store was fucking cleaned out. I went to my local liquor store, which is in suburbia too. It's not like it was down in the city. I mean, it's in the suburbs. And I remember seeing like the entire vodka shelf was gone. And I remember because I bought a bottle of Sky Vodka, I think, which I would never buy, but it was like one of the only bottles of vodka left. And I was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll add this to the to the stack downstairs. And, uh, and so I did. And of course, I haven't even opened that bottle yet. But I remember being, I remember realizing, okay, something's going on here. You know, this is, and, and one of my big worries at that point was really not so much the virus because data had started to kind of trickle out of South Korea and Italy. And we were starting to get, you know, some idea that, all right, it wasn't Ebola. It wasn't an 80% fatality rate. Um, you know, it didn't look good then. I mean, now we know uh, it's far, I don't want to say better, but far less lethal than a lot of people thought in, in March. Um, and so I just remember kind of turning my attention then to being worried about what the public response was going to be. I was really kind of worried about the panic that would ensue. Um, and so days, months, and weeks went by. Everything kind of, you know, the, the panic started to die down a little bit. Uh, stores gradually, you know, they, they hadn't restocked. But this was about the time that, you know, there were meat shortages. And then all of a sudden the market started to realize it. And then all of a sudden, everybody started extrapolating worst case scenarios. What's going to happen to supply chains? What's going to happen to the country? You know, then we started talking about, you know, temporary lockdowns and permanent lockdowns. And what's that going to do to the economy? And uh, and then all of a sudden, the market just got absolutely thrashed. It got murdered. And I remember that, you know, finally some of the uh, shorts that I had on and some of the puts that I had in the SPY, you know, started to pay off at that point. And I remember just, you know, exhaling, being like, shit, all right, you know, I was right. Meanwhile, at the same time, a lot of quote unquote financial professionals, and I'm not going to mention any names, but I will say that there were a fair amount of people that flipped complete shits in February, in March, in April, when the market started to tank and lost their fucking minds. I mean, if you want to, and I'm not saying I have, you know, the steadiest hand in the market, all right, because I definitely don't. And I'm not saying I'm not the most prescient person in the market, because I'm not, because I'm not a billionaire and I'm not fucking retired, all right? I'm not, I'm not living in Turks and Caicos on a yacht somewhere guzzling champagne, Although I may put that on my list for 2021 now that I say it. Now I hear it come out of my mouth, it sounds very good. But anyways, the point is that everybody that's supposed to be prescient about these things and everybody that's supposed to be prepared for these things, namely hedge funds. I think Bill Ackman was really the only hedge fund that had he had a big hedge on that actually paid off. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I remember all of the financial professionals started to visibly panic and flip shits. I mean, we saw this kind of shit a couple years ago. I always make fun of 
David Faber for jumping off the desk that one day when the market was down a thousand points or whatever. You know, the day he was like, I got to make some calls, you know, and he got up and ran off the desk. I was like, give me a break. But this was like sustained limit down days, like five, six, seven days in a row. It was happening. The VIX went to fucking like 80 or something ridiculous. The premiums on even on just SPY options were insane. I mean, SPY options that were $50, $75 out of the money had beefy bids on them. You could have been selling options and making a killing. Of course, I didn't because I was too scared shitless. I didn't know what direction things were going to go and what the hell was going to happen. But everybody that was supposed to be pressing, everybody that gets paid to manage money and to have a calm and steady hand, and I will give credit, there were some people that came on CNBC during the sell-off and said, hey, you know, this is a generational opportunity. We only see an opportunity like this, you know, once or twice in a lifetime or some things like that. And some people did get it right. But many people, the people that were out there calling for the closure of the market, the people that were out there unhedged, I watched those people suffer in real time and melt down on Twitter, on television, in writing, anywhere that they could get access to the media. And it was visible. And I'm not going to name names, but go back to February, March of this year and just browse through some media and see who was handling it well and who wasn't. On March 16th, uh, there was an article on Zero Hedge called just close the whole thing up cnbc anchors meltdown beg for market closures on twitter and it reads like this this is from march of this year so kind of get your head back into march we had no clue what this virus was nobody was wearing a mask the the world health organization wasn't telling anybody to wear a mask Nobody had any psychological idea of what the impact of this was going to be. That was the other thing, too. I put out a tweet in February saying, hey, we should all start doing some mental gymnastics to try to prepare ourselves mentally for what the psychological impact is going to be of seeing people walk around. I said in Tyvek suits and masks. We're not in Tyvek suits, but we are wearing masks. And I got absolutely destroyed for that in March. You're crazy. You know, what the fuck are you talking about? You're a fear monger, this, that, and the other. Well, guess what, motherfucker? You can't go to the gas station right now without bumping into somebody wearing a fucking spacesuit, and uh, And that's how things go. So this is how this article reads. Monday, March 16th, 2020. Let me take you back. If you have a brandy, this is a good time to take a sip right here. Few are dealing with the economic and market turmoil with more chaos and less class and resolve than the expert buy and hold class over at CNBC, who shockingly never said one word of warning to their retail viewers when the market was doing nothing but going straight up for more than a decade and instead were dragging mom-and-pop investors into massively overvalued stocks, urging them to buy at all-time highs and who are now melting down before our eyes at the first sight of a substantial market pullback. Their solution, own the shorts by shutting down the market entirely. Because if one can't buy the fucking dip, is it even a market? As recently as Friday, when the Dow Jones posted a 2,000-point gain on the back of a short squeeze that nearly doubled the indices' gains in the last 15 minutes of the day, there was no talk about markets being defective or needing to close. That was, of course, until the Fed's $700 billion quantitative easing bazooka bailouts of markets fizzled spectacularly on Sunday night 
and futures promptly went limit down. When it appeared that the Fed's plan was failing, some of the industry's finest began to panic visibly. Prior to the Fed news, Halftime Report's Scott Wapner had already called for blanket censorship of Twitter. And this is a tweet from Wapner. I wish Jack had the power to limit Twitter in times like this to only critical news and information about the crisis. Things not relevant or just straight up nonsense should be immediately blocked. And I'll just leave it at that. Which, of course, would be a harbinger of things to come this year, by the way, when social media decided to basically not report on anything that could skew the election in favor of Donald Trump at any point in October, November. At least that's what it appeared to be from my perspective. The article continues, uh, After the Fed bazooka failed to calm markets, it sent the popular talking heads into a typing panic as Wapner started tweeting wildly, criticizing NFL players for signing contracts, prodding the NYSE to close the floor, and then begging them to close the whole thing up so the market could start, quote, start again later. (laughs) Perhaps because when things don't go your way, you can always beg for a reset in some imaginary world where the Fed still runs everything. Now, back then, I was of the like mind that maybe the Fed wasn't going to be able to do anything to solve the problem, but the combination of unlimited QE and the Fed stepping in ultimately led to the recovery in the markets. But uh, but the point is that back then, people were uh, clamoring for the market to close. This is what David Faber said. Uh, this is March 15th. It may be the best of very bad choices, but the idea of a two-week holiday that includes market closures is one I continue to hear from many in the financial community. Secretary Mnuchin disagreed with the idea last Friday, but events can change opinions. He's basically saying when we don't like the way the market's going, we want to shut it down. And between that point of view and the professional money managers who probably got fucking curb stomped, okay, by the market getting thrashed in March. And I don't know what it was like for a lot of money managers, but I imagine they faced a lot of phone calls from a lot of clients who they have been telling over the years to buy and hold and that everything would be okay, who want to know why, you know, we just had a 40% drawdown from highs over the course of the month or whatever the hell it was. And uh, many of whom I'm sure... Consider hedging to be, hey, we'll buy bonds too, right? <laughs> you want to hedge your stocks, uh, just buy bonds too. It's like, well, that fucking doesn't want to work anymore. You know, this isn't the 80s where bonds sell off, uh, you know, and the market goes up and vice versa. That shit doesn't happen anymore because the Fed has rigged both markets, right? Hey, I want to diversify. I'm going to own, you know, Apple and Microsoft. Okay, I'm hedged. Well, you're long both these positions. Yeah, well, I'm hedged. You know, my financial advisor told me that. So there was a lot of panic and a lot of screaming and yelling and just general shitting of the pants by many people in the industry. So if I learned one thing from this year, it was that my assertions that it is a rigged game that the Fed has perpetuated and that that rigged game has not only rigged the markets, but has also rigged the psyche of people to no longer think about risk, uh, that that assertion is correct. Because even when the headlines were coming through, and again, folks, I'm not some, you know, Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind doing equations on the window type guy, all right? 
I'm your uh, shot in a beer crowd, all right? I plunge my own toilet at home when I have problems with it. I'm that kind of guy. And even I was sitting there saying, well, it's been 30 days since I've been seeing these headlines. Something might happen to the market. You know, well, it's been 60 days. Something might happen to the market. And then I wake up one morning and something happens to the market. It's like, well, how the fuck am I the only guy that saw this? You know, Chris Martinson at Peak Prosperity. There were a couple people that I'll give credit to. Ben Hunt was putting out a lot of tweets at the time, I remember. All the fine people that were... And a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of places like uh, Zero Hedge. That guy, Jesse Colombo. I remember somebody wrote an article on him. He had his basement stocked in the middle of January. And people were pointing and laughing. But uh, And I remember, too, going out and getting, you know, got a couple extra magazines for my pistols. I got a couple extra pistols. Uh Bought some more ammunition. I mean, you couldn't get that shit in March and April. And you definitely couldn't get it over the summer when the civil unrest really started to break out in the country. So the first point is that everybody that's supposed to be looking out for you, that's supposed to know what's going to happen in advance and how to react to it, the people that essentially get paid to predict the future. That's pretty much their job when it comes to the market. Can't predict the future. And why is that? Well, because it, the future has always been the market going up. And that's the product of central bank intervention in the capital markets, which continues, which is why we have 10 million people unemployed in the stock market is at all time highs, <laughs> which is how we're ending the year. My buddy sent me a text yesterday. He said, the NASDAQ's going to finish up 50% this year. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? That's not 50% off the lows. I think he was saying 50% for the year, which means it counts the absolutely ridiculous 30% drawdown that happened in March. And then from there, like that like that 30% drawdown was just the fuse that we needed to light. You know, 10 million unemployed was just the fuse we needed to, we needed to light. It was the key to unlocking brand new all-time highs. No, it was the key to scaring the shit out of everybody in the industry and their associated cronies in the government and at the central banks, and that led to QE infinity, which of course led to uh, lots of cheap money going everywhere, the rich getting richer, the poorer seeing their share of the purchasing power in the country continue to get decimated. There's nothing like rewarding people that don't have access to toilet paper during the middle of a pandemic where many of them is are employed by redistributing the purchasing power in the country a little bit more towards the billionaires. By the way, there was something like over 50 billionaires made this year in the country. And uh, I think the top 100 richest people this year, while the economy essentially imploded unto itself like a dying star, the top 100 richest people in the country made something like $1.3 trillion. And some of these people, like Elon Musk, it's not like he had this great financial year. You know, Tesla, the revenue growth of that company, it's, eh, you know. But hey, that didn't stop the stock from doing a 10x that's a, or a 7x or whatever it did. The point is, at some point, somebody's going to look into the options market on Tesla. And I've been saying this all year, and I'm predicting it for 2021. At some point, somebody needs to scrutinize the option buys in that company very carefully. 
There may be nothing, but there may be something. People keep saying to me, well, it's Robinhood traders that are going in there buying up, you know, the the calls. I, I believe that, actually. You know, I believe that part of it is the Wall Street bets crowd, etc., because they're conditioned, just like they're conditioned to go in and buy Bitcoin at any price under a million, they're conditioned to go in and buy Tesla calls all day, any day, for any reason at all. But there have been a number of very suspicious big boy buys in those calls like the one yesterday for instance that came into June 20 or January 2022s i think somebody laid 2.2 million dollars uh, above the ask i think for the 1200 or 1250 strike calls okay that is not some fucking peckerhead at home on wall street bets uh launching a 2.2 million dollar missile into tesla calls could be a hedge, could be something else, but I would certainly be interested to know what's going on there. The point is that the rich got richer this year and the poor got absolutely shit on. And really, I'll skip over the civil unrest this summer to just make the point that there has been no better proof that the middle class and the lower class in this country get shit on than the congressional circle jerk we witnessed over the last three fucking months four months, five months of trying to get a second stimulus bill out, regardless of whether or not you agree with the idea of stimulus and the Keynesian umbrella that it falls under. Putting all of that aside, the fact that these imbeciles got together and couldn't put this thing together for fucking five months because they were hooting and hollering and arguing and everybody wanted to, you know, get more shit in for their favorite lobbyist. And then we do get a bill and we turn around and hand Americans $600 in stimulus payments after, you know, it's been like six months since the first $1,200 payment. Like, if you didn't get money from the PPP program and you weren't collecting unemployment and maybe your job, you know, just got worse and you couldn't collect unemployment and maybe you just need a little shot in the arm, you're one of those people that kind of falls in between, well, I could get PPP funds or... um you know, things are great still. If you're one of those people that falls between that, well, what the fuck is $600 going to do? You know, after it's been six months of just getting decimated. And then our fearless leaders in government turn around and have the gall to put this into a bill that offers hundreds of millions of dollars to other countries and all these bullshit programs and nonsense. Absolute horseshit. There's never been a time, I don't think, where government should be more ashamed of themselves than what they just produced and decided to pass off a stimulus in this omnibus spending bill that was attached to this COVID relief shit. I mean, if you're not insulted by that, you're not fucking paying attention. And it doesn't matter what class you are. I mean, you don't even need to be in the lower middle class, even though I think you should be disproportionately pissed off. But if you're in the upper class, even if you're a billionaire or a trillionaire, how do you not look at that and say, this government machine is the most inefficient fucking thing I have ever laid my eyes on. $100 million to Pakistan for gender studies in that bill? Hey, put the $100 million aside and put it into a fund and distribute it to businesses that need it, that need a shot in the arm, that took their PPP and couldn't get any more, or to single mothers that need it, who are working and trying to pay for childcare. Give it to them. Gender studies in Pakistan. Why is that our priority right now? In the middle of an economic crisis here in the United States. Fucking, you know, a billion dollars to Egypt or something. Egypt! What? What are we doing? We need the money here, you know? And then Trump 
says, well, we should make it 2000 And regardless of whether or not you agree with the idea of spending or, the, again, the ideology that falls under, people were turning around going, Trump's a traitor trying to hold up this bill. One of the Democrat strategists said that. I think it was an M- MSNBC producer. He's a traitor for holding up the bill. Like, motherfucker, how is he a traitor for trying to take money that we were going to give to foreign nations and turn around and get it distributed to U.S. citizens? I mean... There's a lot of shit you can complain about with Trump. Again, I said in February he's going to lose the election due to his initial response to COVID. But I can't, I can't make, you know, I can't do that mental gymnastics where that makes him a traitor. But maybe that's just my fantastic brain. Who knows? So while the government was trying to decide whether or not we should lock down for 15 days or which, you know, became, of course, 15 months after that. uh, Then the George Floyd incident happened this year which set off a massive discussion and massive civil unrest in the country about race relations, which I'm not going to get into in depth, but you can listen to my previous podcast for, you know, the play-by-play on that, and emboldened Antifa, who uh, went out and decided to wreck, loot, and riot U.S. cities, there then became a call for defunding the police. And uh, a lot of major cities saw their homicide rates go up this year, saw their murder rates go up this year. You know, I speculated back in the summer when I was talking to Bill Speck, uh, Bill Speckenstein. <laughs> what do you do when you speculate with Fleckenstein? You Speckenstein. That sounds like a fucking mop thing. You know, you mop and glow. Speckenstein fucking gets the kitchen floor clean perfectly. Putting that aside for a second. <laughs> Happy New Year, you fucks. Putting that aside for a second, I said to Fleckenstein over the summer, listen, man, I think a lot of the unrest that is happening is a result of people being locked in their houses and the socioeconomic gap that is widening, thank you to the Fed, and the fact that a lot of these people and the people that I was talking to over the summer, you know, in West Philadelphia where I was going and, you know, hanging out at 58th and Market, you know, places where I would go and visit, places that I used to live around, places that I used to be around, but I would go talk to people there, you know, just going to get food. You sit around, you just talk to people in the neighborhood, and a lot of them told me the same thing, you know, which is it's just difficult to fucking catch up. It's difficult to catch up. You know, you work 40 hours, and it's difficult to catch up because the cost of living is far outpacing the... uh what people are earning and that's happening at a time where all of a sudden the economy has ground to a halt. So it didn't really matter what industry you were in. Everything kind of slowed down and everybody made laid offs. It doesn't matter if you were fucking, you know, making fried chicken at 58th and market or whether or not you were operating the subway at 30th street station, or if you were working at Samsung footwear on South street selling sneakers Or if you're working, uh, you know, come on, what's another Philly landmark idiot? At Tiernanog, serving beers. Not a landmark, but a good bar to go to, by the way, if you're waiting for your train at 30th Street. That and Misconduct, the new Misconduct is right there too. But if you're one of those people, no matter what industry you're in, everything slowed down. The, The pandemic and the shutdown was like an equal opportunity fucker upper of things. No matter what industry you're in, you saw a slowdown. And, and people that I talked to then, you know, were saying the same shit. 
We can't catch up. We try. Second job. This, that, and the other. We're grinding. You know. But we can't catch up. And uh, that wealth gap has gotten much worse. You know. The stock market's at all-time highs. That doesn't mean fuck all to a lot of people. A lot of people are still really grinding it out going into the end of the year here. So while this civil unrest starts and the defund the police narrative starts and then there's riots across the country and then they release this body cam footage of the George Floyd incident and you can make the argument that Derek Chauvin should not have been uh, kneeling on the guy's neck and that he did in fact kill him. You can make that argument. But if you watch the entire interaction, there didn't seem to be anything about it that had anything to do with race. The police were pretty nice to him from the get-go. They seemed to want to accommodate him to help him into the back of the police cruiser. Uh, I don't know. I watched that body cam footage and I was shocked. And I looked back and said, well, this set off a whole big, you know, whole big social justice movement in the country on the basis of race when race may have had nothing to do with this. Certainly didn't appear to be any evidence that race had anything to do with that interaction. But for getting inside the mind of Derek Chauvin, you know, we don't know. Would he have acted the same way with a white person? We don't know. You know, there was a guy standing next to him. I think one of his other officers was standing next to him was an Asian guy. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. But it certainly seemed like the country had become a powder keg this summer. And that's what set it off. And with that became a lot of misdirected hostility and a lot of general chaos And not helping that out were a lot of politicians who wanted to embrace this movement because they didn't want to look like, you know, they felt like, well, if if we have some backbone and we say rioting and looting is bad, then we're going to be painted as racists and we won't get votes, which, of course, is a totally, completely idiotic way to think, right? That's why shit winds up getting worse instead of getting better. But, uh... A lot of the politicians just kind of exacerbated things and made things worse through that line of thinking. And chaos continued to ensue throughout most of the summer. Toward the end of the summer, things finally started to slow down a little bit. Maybe just because it got fucking cold outside. Although I did see the video yesterday of people in New York throwing their bicycles at a BMW and jumping on the hood of a BMW, smashing the front windshield in. Is it any wonder people are leaving New York City, they're leaving California, and they're going to Texas? You know, these liberal-run cities where the police feel like they can't do their job. And again, I've said many times in this podcast, I'm not Mr. Yay fucking police. You know, I've had good interactions with police. I've had bad interactions with police. I think generally they're trying to do a good job. But things like that where those people feel emboldened to go and do stuff like that and just destroy property and just create chaos. Would I want to live there? Would you want to live in New York City under the reign of Bill de Blasio? I mean, I wouldn't. What is it? You know, you can pay additional taxes for the honor of living in a city where there's no law and order (laughs) sounds great sign me up bill like talk about having your fucking priorities out of whack right and that taxation and overregulation and too much government is what's driving people out of california and it's driving people to texas now and so you're seeing company after company after company and billionaire after billionaire moving out of california you guys fucked it up what do you want me to tell you you fucked it up The solution was less regulation, less government interference, more civility, more law and order, right? 
People say, what's so appealing about the libertarian mindset? It's like, well, not a lot of regulation, not a lot of government interference, at least from a federal level. States can kind of make their own decisions. More personal freedom. Freer markets, right? Which means no Fed intervention, which means no shutting down the market every time you scare yourself shitless looking at your own shadow, like many people did. And equality under the law. And, you know, one of the things that people, libertarians, want government to do is they want them to enforce the law and uphold the law. I mean, that's like the one big thing. I don't need you coming into my house telling me what kind of straws I can use, whether or not I'm allowed to drink Coke or Diet Coke or this drink or that drink or put Parmesan cheese on my pizza or this or that. I don't need the International Department of whatever puts the fucking labels on the mattresses. I don't need that shit. All right, we'll get all that stuff. The people will figure that stuff out on their own. We just want you to be there when somebody breaks the law and that needs to be adjudicated objectively based on the Constitution, based on the laws of, you know, states, and in some cases, federal laws. That's it. So what what is causing people to move out of California? Well, higher taxes, more regulation, more, uh, you know, government, less law and order. So, personally, this gels kind of with my personal ideology, which is, hey, I want law and order, and I want more personal freedom. I mean, if the Democrats would just open their eyes, they would see that's what people are moving to Texas for. Why are people leaving? They're leaving because they want lower taxes and more freedom. I mean, again, this is one of those situations where you don't have to be Russell Crowe drawing fucking equations on the wall. To figure it out, you don't need to be a PhD to get this one. You just got to have, you know, your fucking grapefruit on top of your neck screwed on halfway straight. You don't even need to have your neck, you don't even need to have your head screwed on completely straight. Just halfway straight to figure that one out. Why are people leaving? Hmm. Let me think. At any point, Bill de Blasio sit down and in his wonderful brain think to himself, why are people leaving New York City? doesn't appear like that. It appears like he sits down and he says, I'm doing a good job. That's what he says. That might be the only thing he says. I'm doing a good job today. I'm saving lives. Have you guys looked at the chart of Florida, by the way, and their cases compared to the rest of the nation? Florida, completely open, no mask mandate. You know, not not any type of huge uh, differentiation in the data coming out of Florida over the last couple months than the rest of the country. I mean, <clears throat> that doesn't tell you that... Maybe the masks and the lockdowns might not be necessary. Then I don't know what is. So going into the back end of the year this year, we completely lost sight of the fact that we originally were doing 15 days to slow the spread and it turned into lockdown at all costs. And this was very baffling because it was as early as March when I did a Periscope called Being a Contrarian in a Time of Coronavirus when I started to explore the idea that the market would in fact go up. We have unlimited QE and maybe the data coming out about COVID wasn't as bad as people thought. I mean, I feel like I'm a fucking three-month lagging indicator sometimes, or forward-looking indicator, rather, sometimes. Because I started to kind of, you know, think about what was going to happen. What would the consequences be? And throughout the year, in March, when everything tanked, I said, where do I want to be? I want to be in financials first, and I want to own gold. I want to be in the market. I would say the SPY, I think, is going to 4,000 and gold's going to 4,000. I said it's going to be a race to 4,000 between the SPY and gold. And uh, and it was weird because up until that point, I never really was bullish. But I kind of figured 
hey, the Fed has put this backstop in place. They're going to flood the banks with cash. And so this isn't a financial crisis. I said on an earlier podcast earlier this year, you know, this isn't a systemic financial crisis where the banks are going to come down. This is just a uh, economy shutting down. But there's really, at this point, everybody has bought into the fiat central bank QE fuckery so much that the banks can, you know, tap the discount window for whatever they need, whenever they need it. They can borrow from the Fed at a cost of zero and turn around and charge the public 23% annually on their credit card. Thank you very much. That's what the fuck is going on. So next time you can only get, you know, five basis points on a fucking checking account somewhere, make sure you remind the bank that that's happening. I actually did that once when I was opening a bank account this year. And uh, I got some interesting looks from the woman that I was, oh, she said, would you like to talk to one of our financial advisors? I said, absolutely not. (laughs) Just like that. Oh, okay. Okay. I remember that was right around when things started to get crazy because she had hand sanitizer on the desk. And first off, they were still doing in-person. Now they're just doing the drive-thru. But uh, everybody, both of us were going for the hand sanitizer, you know, two, three, four, five times a minute. <laughs> it was a sight to behold, definitely. That may have been in early March, I think, because I remember telling her, hey, I think this COVID thing, we might see some shit here, you know. Oh, okay, okay. So coming into the end of the year, what has happened? Well... We have, and this is one of the comparisons I like to make, right? COVID is supposed to be, on average, three times more deadly than the flu. Okay, what do we do for the flu? We do nothing. What do you mean, Chris, we do nothing? Well, we do nothing. I mean, we literally do nothing. I mean, if you're sick with the flu, you're supposed to stay home. But, you know, people go to work with the flu. People go to school with the flu. You know, it's just, you do it to be courteous, but... Nobody's out there taking your temperature. Anytime you cough in public, people aren't rushing up to you in a Tyvek suit saying, you know what, do you have a fever? Are you ill? You can't be in here. Get six feet away from anybody. We don't do anything for the flu. Nothing. Nothing. Does that mean we should do nothing for COVID? No, that's not what it means. But does does the idea of shutting everything down, the entire economy and everything that we've ever done and locking people in their houses and destroying small businesses, does that make sense relative to what we do for the flu? And of course the answer is no, it fucking doesn't. Lest we forget, layered on top of that is the hypocrisy that we are seeing with many small businesses being forced to shut down like many of my friends who run bars, some of whom are going to try to open tonight and told me they have to close before 11 p.m. Thanks so much, by the way. If government had a fucking soul... All right. If government had a soul, they would say, all right, you know what? Take it to 1230 tonight because it's New Year's Eve and we need people to blow off some steam. Like the hour and a half is going to make any fucking difference to anybody. And they don't. They don't. They say 11 p.m. We got to put the we put the put the mandate in order. We have the we have the regulation. We will we will have people from the fucking so and so board out to ensure that everything is shut down by 11. Fucking had enough. Everybody's had enough. You know? Who was the politician today I saw on Twitter? I'm going to look it up right now because I don't want to get my facts wrong. Not like anybody gives a shit anyways. But uh, this guy I follow on Twitter named Stalingrad and Porsky, who is a great account if you don't follow him or her, posted earlier, (coughs) Ontario Finance Minister Rod Phillips. Okay, it's Ontario, Canada. Ontario Finance Minister Rod Phillips is back in Canada, arrived at Pearson Airport this morning. He apologized for his decision to travel to St. Bart's. <laughs> he went He went to the Caribbean. 
I know I disappointed a lot of people, no one more than myself, he said. Really, though? Did you really disappoint yourself when you were laying on the beach and you were drinking rum out of a coconut and you were flying first class back and forth to Ontario? You told everybody in your province to lock down and then like the fucking hypocrite you are, you left and you went somewhere and you partied. Just like all these other politicians that are doing the same shit. Telling everybody to do shit and then going out to their house parties, going out to their fancy dinners, going out to this, going out to that, getting their hair done. Hey, the fucking charade ends this year. It's over. Tomorrow is 2021. We turn over a new leaf. People are tired of it. I was having this discussion with a woman at my coffee shop today, lovely woman, who said to me, wouldn't it be great if we could all just kind of wake up in 2021 and everything would be different? And I was like... The only thing stopping us from doing that is us. Psychologically, the turning of the year is a big deal, right? It's a, uh, it is psychologically a milestone. And I feel like we're at this breaking point now where people are so sick and tired of this fucking hypocrisy when it comes to these lockdowns that in 2021, people might just say, eh. And I also have this weird feeling that once Biden gets inaugurated, things might just... You know, we might just forget it. Bill de Blasio said today, the New York Post reported, Bill de Blasio is naming March 14th COVID Remembrance Day. It's like, numb nuts, March 14th last year, you were telling people to ride the subway. And what is Remembrance Day? We remember the people that passed away? The pandemic stops on March 14th? Is that what it means? Oh, it's over. Bill de Blasio thinks it's over now. Maybe it's time to think about Remembrance Day. We've got it all dealt with now. Well, if we have it all dealt with now, why is your entire city shut down? Why is New York shut down completely if it's over with? This guy's thinking about, oh, I'll do Remembrance Day. That, that's him thinking he's doing something efficient, by the way, in the mayor's office. We'll name this day this day, and then tomorrow I'm going to give the key to the city to somebody. Great! If you can think of any other gestures that do nothing, mean nothing, and, uh, and are absolutely devoid of any type of productivity at all, go ahead and come out with those too. Make sure you do all those before you wind up leaving office. It will be a Potemkin mayorship. Tomorrow, I'm going to erect a building made out of an old refrigerator box. And at some point, we will let the children play in it like it's a fort. Great, thank you. Very good job, Bill. By the way, is the entire city still shut down? Well, yes, it is, because we can't have people out there just running around willy-nilly. Well, what about Walmart? Well, Walmart's okay. We can have people in Walmart. Oh, okay. You want to tell me your reasoning on that? The point is, people are just fucking tired of it heading into 2021. And I've said all year this year that I'm very optimistic about the turn of the year going into 2021. I said in February and March, hey, the scientific community's behind the vaccine. Fauci and everybody else. By the way, we didn't even talk about the World Health Organization. But, I mean, you want to talk about dropping the fucking ball... I don't even need to tell you. You can go back, look at my Twitter, search for WHO. Just absolutely one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen the way that they handled this pandemic. While I was flipping out in February about nobody doing anything, they came out and did a press conference. I'll never forget. I was out at the coffee shop watching it on my laptop. I was thinking, all right, time to get serious. World Health Organization. And they came out and they... They thanked China like six times. China's doing a great job. China's doing a great job. China's doing a great job. We can't thank China enough. Thank you, China. Thank you, China. Thank you, China. Have we independently audited the numbers? No, we haven't. Do we have any clue what this virus is? Well, no, we don't. But thank you, China. They didn't even mention like, oh, this could be an emergency. 
They dropped the ball big time. But I'm very optimistic. I was saying in March, in April, hey, I think the vaccine will be here before the end of the year. I think I said many times, I think it's going to be here in time for the holidays. A lot of professionals and people on the left came out and said, there's no way. There's no way it's going to get done. 18 months minimum, we were hearing back in February. And I said, look, uh, I think it's going to happen this year. And I also feel very good about the turn of the year. So I would be lying if I told you that I'm going to be this miserable and jaded and pissed off in a few hours. And that's not just going to be because of the alcohol. It's going to be because I don't know. I remember doing a Periscope in like April this year. There was one where I was driving and I said, "Ah, I just got a bad feeling about all this shit. And the truth is the year sucked. Uh, It wasn't as bad as it could have been. Uh, You know, many people got by still. We're all still alive. If you can hear my voice, that means you're alive, which is, you know, goes in the positives column for the year. And uh, now I feel the opposite heading into 2021. I feel like there's a great wave of optimism going into 2021. And I got messages all day today because I put a tweet out. Hey, I feel very optimistic. And of course, my followers being as wonderful as they are, 140,000 replies saying, oh, just wait, 2021 is going to be much worse. <laughs> and while I appreciate your op- your optimism, my optimism is uh, actual optimism and not sarcastic optimism, I really think that this year coming up is going to be... Uh, is going to be one of relief. It's going to be one of hopefully people counting their blessings and realizing how good we all have it. I think there's some big philosophical lessons we can learn from this year. Um, I hope this year humbled some people. I hope it gave some people perspective. I know it certainly did for me about the things that are important in my life, being with my family in person, you know, the, uh, the, the ability to go out and exercise and go to jujitsu and the things that I love and, you know, the people that I work with and the people that are nice enough to listen to the podcast. I, I have a newfound respect for all those things. And I hope that everybody else kind of is humbled in the same way. I remember when the pandemic first started, I would go outside for walks a lot. That was back before it was getting dark at fucking four o'clock in the afternoon like it does now. But I would go out and I'd just see people walking and biking in my neighborhood. And they were smiling and waving at each other. And they weren't looking at their phones. And they were just out for a stroll. And I was like, shit, man. It's cool to see everybody out just just out for a stroll. So there were these nice little moments kind of interlaced in the midst of all the chaos. And I feel like 2021 would be a great time to embrace all of those good things. And to let all the bad shit go. And uh, I feel like psychologically, like I said, if I'm a three-month forward-looking indicator, that would mean it's, uh, you know, the way I felt in September is the way that people are going to feel going into next month. And psychologically, you know, by the end of the summer this year, I was completely and totally over the idea of COVID. I mean, it just wasn't something that I paid much attention to. I mean, I paid attention to it in the sense that I tried to be safe and I tried to abide by the rules, but in terms of being scared, I just wasn't scared. You know, I was I was scared in February when I didn't know what was going on and when nobody was paying attention. That was that was the scariest thing when I felt like I was the only person seeing that headline every day. I knew I wasn't, but but I feel like there's going to be a big psychological shift going into this year and whether it's political, whether it's psychological, whatever. Feel like 2021 is going to be a good one. And I hope everybody goes out tonight and fucking blows off the steam that you guys have rightfully earned the right to blow off. All right. If you go somewhere in the shutdown times 11, fucking stay till 12. I mean, give me a break. 
You know, give me a break. Or stand outside. Just bring a flask, by the way. And this isn't even for like tonight, New Year's advice. This is just general advice. Just have a flask. Why? Because then you never have to worry about, oh, is the bar open? Is the bar not open? Do they have the whiskey I like? Do they not have the whiskey I like? You know, what happens if you get caught in the back of a taxi cab in a traffic jam somewhere? That sucks. We've all been there. And your phone battery's dying. What are you going to do with your time? Well, flask. There's your answer right there. You know? What do you get caught in a Zoom meeting for work that hasn't started or a conference call? You're waiting for five people to join. It was supposed to start at 1 p.m., but it's already 1.10 and everybody's asking you to hold on because they got another call that held them up. And we, you know because you're starting late, you're not going to finish late. And that's going to fuck up your plans to go to happy hour. Flask. There's always an answer. So anytime you think, oh, wear a mask, just think flask because it rhymes. It's not the solution to COVID, but it's the solution to a lot of other problems. And I guess really, that's the lesson I'm going to leave you with here in 2020. (laughs) I guess that's my point, but I do feel optimistic about this year. And sincerely, I want to thank you guys very much, not only for listening for the podcast, but continuing to contribute on Patreon. It means a lot. It's been a hell of a year. And uh, it wasn't just me. A lot of people that follow me that I talk to on the daily, we got a lot of shit right this year. So hopefully we, uh, we have that same kind of prescience going into next year. And uh, I hope you guys let it rip tonight. I, I really hope you do. And if you're listening to this hungover and it's not New Year's Eve, you're listening to it on New Year's Day or a couple days after New Year's and you still got a headache, that means you did a good job. Because uh, if there's one thing COVID should remind you all of, it's that we only live once and you only get one shot at it. So whether or not COVID takes you out or you step out your front door, uh, you know, whistling zippity doodah because you're on your way to ShopRite to buy an onion to cook with, and all of a sudden a SEPTA bus hits you doing 132,000 miles an hour, you got to remember, it could all end at any point, and you just got to be stoked to be here. So take that love and that new attitude into 2021, and I'll see all you guys there. But for right now, for the last time in 2020, for fuck's sake, the headphones are off. Let's get this year over with, and I'm the fuck out of here. <laughs> Peace.